0: Let's open the Word of God together to Judges chapter 17. We'll read the entire chapter, Judges 17. there was a man of Mount Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said unto his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursest, and spakest of, also in mine ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son. And when he had restored the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now therefore I will restore it unto thee. Yet he restored the money unto his mother, and his mother took two hundred shekels of silver and gave them to the founder who made thereof a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had an house of gods, and made an ephod, and teraphim, and consecrated one of his sons, who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And there was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. And the man departed out of the city from Bethlehem, Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. And he came to Mount Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said unto him, Whence comest thou? And he said unto him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said unto him, Dwell with me, and be unto me a father and a priest, and I will give thee ten shekels of silver by year, and a suit of apparel, and thy victuals." So the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man was unto him as one of his sons. And Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then said Micah, Now know I that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. Here we end our reading of the scriptures. On the foundation of the whole Bible rests the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, which in Lord's day... 35 explains to us the meaning of the second of the Ten Commandments. Beginning with question 96. What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Are images then not at all to be made? God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they may be represented, yet God forbids to make or have any resemblance of them either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? No. For we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have his people taught not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. Last Sunday morning, we began our study of the Ten Commandments, which together fully reveal to us the will of God. For how we are to live as his people. And we took note of the fact that the first commandment is first for many important reasons. Foremost among which is that the first commandment reveals one of the foundational principles of our faith. That undergirds all of the Christian life. Namely that there is one only true God. And now following from this foundational principle there is only one true God. Following from that are the rest of the Ten Commandments. If there is this one true God who created all things, who created us for himself, and who has redeemed us by the blood of his only begotten Son, then it follows that all of our life belongs to him, and we are obligated to serve him according to his will, not out of a bare sense of duty, but out of the principle of love for the God who first loved us. And so we approach the Ten Commandments not as a barren, stale, rigid set of rules, but we approach the Ten Commandments as the living will of the living God who has given us new life and now it is our delight to live that new life out for His glory. And the Ten Commandments guide us in how to live for God's glory. The God who is worthy of worship, not only Sunday morning and evening, But in all of life. Logically proceeding from the first commandment. We come to the second commandment. God's ten commandments reveal his will for our lives. The first commandment commandment reveals the will of God that we worship him exclusively. And now the second commandment reveals God's will for that worship that we are to render unto him. The shape that that worship ought to take. And there is the important distinction between the first and the second commandment. The first commandment concerns who we are to worship, and the second commandment concerns how we worship the one true God. And that's what we're going to look at in the sermon this morning. A moment ago we read Judges 17, which is a fascinating passage. There is a bunch of application for various aspects of the Christian life that can be drawn from Judges 17. But we're going to focus on a prominent application, what Judges 17 reveals about the Second Commandment. From one point of view, Judges 17 is an encyclopedia of Second Commandment violations. And by looking at those violations, we're going to see... The face of our sinful nature and learn from that and also receive many positive lessons as to how to obey God's will for this aspect of our lives. His worship. And so the theme is God's will for our worship. God's will for our worship. We're going to start with the negative side of the second commandment and see that God's will for our worship is that worship not be founded on human imagination. Secondly, the positive, we will look at the fact that God's will for worship is that our worship be based squarely upon His Word. And then thirdly, we will note that when worship is based squarely on God's Word, our worship will be centered on Christ, and it is that, ultimately, which brings God the greatest glory. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, so begins the second commandment, and those words express a timeless principle in the language of a former time. The second commandment teaches that it is God's will that our worship not be founded upon our own imaginations. And throughout human history, one of the main ways that worship was founded on human imaginations was through the production and use of images in the worship of God. The principle that this commandment teaches us is that the human will is not what should dictate worship, but the will of God ought to dictate the worship of God. When the second commandment forbids graven images, it's referring to visual representations of God in any form or shape. Visual representations of God in any form or shape. So we see again the close connection between the first commandment and the second, and usually obeying or disobeying these commandments go together. There is one God, and we are to worship Him alone. And that commandment can be violated when a man worships another God. The second commandment is violated when a man worships using images. And he might worship another God using an image of that other God, thus violating the first and second commandment. But it is also possible for someone to worship Or attempt to worship the one true God, but violate the second commandment by worshiping the one true God in a way that is forbidden by God. Such that his worship, being out of conformity with God's will, dishonors God. The second commandment forbids making images and using those images to worship God. Now the catechism makes clear, so that we don't go too far... The Bible doesn't forbid us from making any images at all. Nothing is wrong with images or visual arts which depict creatures. And therefore, not even is all religious art forbidden. There's nothing wrong with opening up a Bible storybook with our children which has beautiful illustrations of Bible stories, events, and characters. Religious art is Permissible So long as it is limited to the depiction of creatures. Because creatures may be depicted. They are earthly. The second commandment. It's forbidding of images is defined by the rest of the commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Or any likeness. Thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them. The point is no images of God. Period. And no images that are to be used as a means by which we worship God. That's the idea of the second commandment. No images of God period. And no images of creatures or angels either to represent God or some way be used as aids to approach God in worship. Now that leads to the question, why does God forbid the making of images of him? Or the use of images in his worship. Why is that? And there are really three reasons that the catechism brings out. in the second question and answer of the Lord's Day brings out explicitly or implies. And the first is this. It's simply impossible to accurately portray the one true God with an image or a visual representation. As John 4 verse 24 says, God is spirit, meaning pure spirit. The essence of God is invisible. It is immaterial, non-physical. God is the creator of physical reality. And what an image does is it necessarily imposes physical qualities upon that which it is meant to represent. God is infinite. His being is illimitable. Meaning it has no limits. He is omnipresent. Omnipotent. But what an image does. Is it jams the infinite being of God. Into a box. A creature box. It forces upon the being of God creaturely characteristics. And then that image says this is what God is like. This is what God looks like. These are the kinds of qualities that God has. So much so that if you look at this image. You are able to commune with God. And understand something of who he is. And that's the danger of an image. The prophet Habakkuk brings this out in a very very pointed way in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 18 where he says what profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it the molten image a teacher of lies the bible calls images of god teachers of lies why Because they are incapable of accurately representing God. And therefore, an image of God will only twist and distort who God is. An image of God will not impart accurate knowledge, but will mislead you. An image, in a visual way, says God is like this, but God is not like that. And so that's the fundamental reason why in the wisdom of God the second commandment says no images of God, don't use them, they will mislead you. Now in connection with that, in the second place, if that's what images do, they are teachers of lies rather than teachers of truth when it comes to the depiction of the almighty and omnipotent God, then... The making of an image and the use of an image as a means by which to worship God, insults him. Putting the infinite God in a creature box devalues his glory. And thus you see images do the exact opposite of what worship is supposed to do. Images drag God's glory down rather than lifting God's name up and extolling him. Worship is to glorify God, but images and their use in worship detract from the glory of God. And thus the Christian, in a heart of love for God, says, No, I will not use these things appealing as they may be to my flesh, because I wish to honor God and extol His infinite glory. And thus third, we see that the use of images or visual representations of God is damaging to the worshiper. Is damaging to the worshipper because the image which he fashions and attempts to use to honor God misleads him. That image is a teacher of lies. And religious history abundantly proves that images present an irresistible temptation to superstition. The teacher of lies leads people to into thinking and believing that there is a certain power and holiness in that religious icon that painting that image and we see that the world over how people end up bowing to images kissing to ima- kissing images believing that if they interact with this picture in a certain way automatically god is going to bless them or they are going to receive some sort of spiritual benefit images the teacher of lies leads into superstition Psalm 115 verse 8 pronounces this verdict upon the image worshiper. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. And there's the warning. The image maker ends up being shaped by the image. He made. The image maker, what he does is he fashions God after his own imagination. And that image which he fashioned then fashions that man's view of God. And that's the danger of the image. And so we see then that the second commandment directly forbids images. But now we can easily grasp that that is just the statement of the principle in the language of a former time. The application of the second commandment is not limited simply to images of stone, wood, silver, and gold. But there is a deeper principle here. And the deeper, deeper principle is this. All man-made worship. All worship that is founded upon human imaginations is forbidden. The human reinvention of worship according to man's desires and what man thinks is best and most profitable is forbidden. Man's will does not rule in worship, but the only will that should govern worship and how it is done is the will of the one God who is to be worshipped. And now we look at Judges 17 for a moment because Judges 17 gives us a vivid portrayal of how far human imagination and inventions can mislead people and lead them away from the proper, biblical, God-glorifying form of worship. Judges, just a note about the last part of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a sobering book because it shows the depths of human sinfulness and not The depths of human sinfulness out there in the world, but the depths of the human sinfulness within Israel, the Old Testament church, among God's people. The majority of the book of Judges reveals a recurring cycle of Israel falling into idolatry. Turning to idol gods entirely or using images to worship God. And continuing impenitently in that sin. And so God stretches out his hand and afflicts them sorely with the chastening rod of discipline. By sending enemies of all sorts to take over Israel and afflict them. And under God's chastening rod, there comes about repentance by the grace of God. And the Israelites cry out for mercy and then god hearing their prayer sends a judge to rescue them from their oppressors and each of those judges in a way is a depiction of jesus christ our redeemer king our redeemer king but now the sobering thing about the book of judges is that this happens over and over and over and over again god's people keep falling back into the same old sinful patterns and before we pass judgment on them How much are we like them? The old ruts of sin so quickly we slide right back in. That's the book of Judges, but now 17 through 20, the last few chapters are an appendix of sorts which illustrate the depth of Israel's departure from God. And one of the areas where Israel departed very, very far. Was in their worship of God. Judges 17-21 through 21 really is a handful of exhibits. Of the evidence that God has in his case against Israel. And what's also sobering is that the events we just read in Judges 17 happened only a generation or two after the conquest of Canaan under under Joshua. How quickly and deeply Israel slid backwards. Well, let's, let's look at the chapter a moment. We meet a man named Micah. And in this Micah, we get a glimpse of what family life and spiritual life was like in Israel during the time of the Judges and things are not good. This man Micah had stolen 1100 shekels of silver from his own mother and evidently his mother suspected him of this crime knowing his character for she had made a point to loudly curse in Micah's own hearing the thief of her money. And it seems that this curse scared Micah into admitting that he did it and he gave the money back to his mother. And at that point, his mother declares that she already had an intention with that money. She was going to dedicate it to God and use it for Micah's good. She had this great plan. They were going to use that money to create an image that could be used in the worship of Jehovah, the God of Israel. And so she says, now that you've restored that money to me, I'm going to go through with my original plan. And 200 shekels of that silver goes to the foundry where... An image, a molten image is fashioned. Now, no, it wasn't a molten image of Baal, but it was a molten image of Jehovah. We don't know what form that image took, that doesn't matter. But this was an image intended to be used in the worship of the God of Israel. But that fashioning of the image is just the start of Micah's departure from the second commandment. Verse 5 tells us that Micah had a house of gods. The idea is he had a little shrine on his estate. And another way of translating house of gods would be house of God. Now it's clear that alongside Jehovah, Micah was a practitioner of other common religious superstitions at the time. There's a reference to teraphim in the passage. And teraphim, that that Hebrew word refers to little miniature idols of household gods. It was common in that day for people to have their own little household gods that they would put in the house and it was thought that those household gods would bring blessing to your immediate family and the people that dwelt in your house. So Micah's got these little teraphim, but he also has his own house of God. A temple of sorts where he sets up this image of Jehovah. What we see is Micah is proceeding to contrive his own homespun religion and form of worship that outwardly mimics the worship of Jehovah in the tabernacle that God had instituted and at this time was pitched at Shiloh. But Micah is unconcerned with what the word of God has to say about worship. He sets up this molten image. He ordains his own son to be priest. He fashions an ephod for his son, who is now his priest. Mimicking the priestly garments that God had prescribed to be used in the tabernacle. And then, as verse 6 goes on to explain, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's what we see here. Every man did what was right in his own eyes when it came to the worship of God. And it made so much sense to him. Look at all these great things I'm doing. How thoughtful I am. Surely this must glorify God. I'm taking the pattern that God gave in his word. And I'm I'm making priestly garments according to it. I I have a priest. I, I have a temple. Surely this must be pleasing to God. But God's will wasn't really a factor. In Micah's decisions or the way he worshipped. The biggest factor was Micah. And what Micah thought was best. What Micah liked. What Micah wanted. He did what was right in his own eyes. And plastered upon it an external form of being in accord with the word of God. To soothe his own conscience. And then... A wandering Levite comes to town. A Levite came from Bethlehem, Judah. A man without a charge. And he he starts acting like a mercenary Levite for hire. He's looking for a place. And that means more than just looking for a place to live. He's looking for a place to settle down and, and do some Levite things. He's looking for a place to practice his spiritual trade. This was a man who wasn't concerned about what God's will was for his duties as a Levite. But treated his status as a Levite as an office he could use however he wanted. For his own advancement and for his own ends. And so this Levite comes to town looking for a place. And Micah hashes out a deal with this Levite to secure his religious services in Micah's own personal house of God. He offers this man a salary, a place to live. He promises to give him victuals—that that is his daily rations of food. And Micah has set up his own homemade church. And then Micah takes it upon himself and his own authority to consecrate, that is to ordain this Levite alongside Micah's own son. So now he has two priests. And the chapter ends with those ominous thoughts of Micah. He thinks, surely God is going to bless me now because look, I have a Levite. I've got a proper Levite for my priest. Now, what what do we see here? There's so much that we see here. But the essence of the second commandment violations on the part of Micah is that God's will never enters the picture. There is complete disregard for God's word. Micah's will governs worship and religion in his household. He crafts for himself a form of religion after his own imagination. And notice the second commandment never comes up here. You'd think that at this time, so shortly after the exodus and the deliverance of God's law to his people, that that would be the first thing upon their minds. What does God's second commandment say? But it doesn't come up. The only way that God's word appears here in Judges 17 is in Micah's mimicry of certain parts of God's word. Making his own little temple. Ordaining his own priests that outwardly look like God's priests. And making an ephod and all of the rest. And so what the final product is, is something possessing an outward form of godliness, but which is entirely denying the power thereof. Entirely disobeying God's will and is ultimately self-serving. It presents itself as the worship of Jehovah, but it is actually Micah's own self-worship. Because everything is about him and customized to suit him. And so we can see how, how offensive that is to God. It's not about God anymore. His worship is twisted into something that Micah manipulates for himself. And this Levite... Who proclaims proclaims himself to be a man of God is plying his religious trade simply as something to advance himself. God is really far from the minds of these men. And that's what gets to the heart of the second commandment. The heart of the second commandment is my people heed my will in your worship. Don't turn my worship into your own thing for you to do how you want to suit your tastes. And don't plaster a veneer of biblicalness to it by mimicking things that the Bible says. But worship according to my will. May my will govern All of worship, and all of your religion, and all of your life. Conform yourself to my word in heart, not just in outward form and shape. Make no graven image means don't make up worship after the imaginations of your own heart. But turn to my word and worship me according to my word. And so there are many things that we can draw from this. Many applications. And we do well to examine ourselves here. What does Micah's second commandment violations expose about us? It exposes our human tendency. The proneness of our sinful nature to anoint ourselves the high priests of our own religion. And to do in religion whatever seems good in our own eyes. That's the impulse of the sinful nature we are called to mortify. We are not the determiners of worship. God in his will is. This passage in the second commandment warns us against making human desires the priority in our worship. It warns us against making ourselves the center. Now to be sure, worship is edifying and true worship must be edifying. And if worship is not edifying, there is a problem. It might be a problem with me. Or it might be the problem with how worship is being done. Worship must be edifying. We ought to get something out of it. But that's not consideration number one. That's not the thing that we craft worship around. Because then it's all about me. And when it's all about me, you have a Micah scenario. Worship is all about God. And if God is front and center, then... His word rules. And we look to his word. And every aspect of worship we think about in light of his word. And everything must be in harmony with his word. And anything that is not in harmony with his word. Ought to be reformed according to his word. And when worship is centered on God. It will be edifying. And we will get much out of it let us heed the second commandment such that we keep our worship focused on God and we keep that as our focus and resist the impulse of our nature and the spirit of our age to shift that focus to something else. Because when our focus is on something else, the human imagination becomes the limit. And when the human imagination runs wild, you end up with Judges 17. The text warns us also then about mimicry rather than conformity to God's word. Form without true obedience. And this is so important, not only in worship, but in all of our spiritual life, which really ought to be an act of worship. Worshipping God rightly is not about conforming merely to an external form. Micah thought that. All right, I've got a Levite. God's word says Levites are to be. the leaders in worship and so because I have a levite god surely going to bless me I got the form right the form is an empty husk if there is no heart behind it a heart that has been conformed to the word of god there must be the heart a heart That submits to the will of God. A heart that loves the God who first loved me. And therefore all of my worship flows from that obedient loving heart for my God. When the heart is there. The proper form will help that worship rise as a pleasing sacrifice to God. This shows our human tendency to want to have worship that tickles our ears rather than pricks our hearts. We see that in Micah. He ordains his own son as priest. Ensuring that Micah will have full control over Micah's religion. And then he finds this Levite in his employ. But he knows that this Levite is going to be the man that tells him what he wants to hear. And so easily that's what we sinners want. We can have itching ears for teachers who will tell us what we want to hear, will affirm us in the biases that we already have, and not challenge us to see our cherished sins, our blind spots. And that's what happens when worship becomes uncoupled from God and the will of man tends, becomes what rules it images, and therefore anything that is fashioned out of the human imagination, that is any form of worship based upon human imagination, is going to stymie Christian conversion. Because self-made worship, that which is fashioned after my imagination, is not going to be pointing out my sins or calling me to to repentance or to be converted more and more to God. There's a warning here against a certain species of wolf in sheep's clothing. And this this is a little more remote from the main thrust of the second commandment, but it's worth pointing out. We we, we see in in both Micah and in this Levite religious mercenaries doing what's right in their own eyes for their own ends. And, And this Levite is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's a mercenary minister for whom the worship of God and his office is merely a tool for securing his own power, his own glory, and his own earthly ends. And he goes through all of the religious motions. He presents himself as this great man, this humble man, who is doing the will of God. Claims divine sanction for his actions, but it's all about him. And it's all for him. We must beware of such species of wolves. No minister, no office bearer rules the church. God does. Now, don't mistake what I just said. God rules through the office of elder. But the point is, no human will is supreme. And no human will in the church may claim such divine sanction that it is unquestionable. God's will alone reigns and must rule in the church, in worship, and in all things. Well, how then do we avoid these corruptions of worship and all image making by keeping worship based upon The word of God. God's will for us and how we are to worship him is revealed in his word. And that's the positive side of the second commandment now. We must worship God as he commands. Question and answer 96 says that. That we in no wise represent God by images. Nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. And to put that in the positive, what it's saying is worship God the way the Bible teaches us to. And the reason for this is clear, isn't it? Worship is so very important. Worship is acknowledging the supreme worth of God and extolling him with praise. Worship is really the purpose of our human existence. We were made for God's glory. And therefore, God's will ought to rule supreme over this most important activity of the Christian life. And because God's will is to reign supreme, God doesn't leave it up to us to figure out How to worship Him. He tells us in His Word. He gives us direction. Our Belgic Confession in Article 7 begins this way. And expresses this principle very beautifully. We believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God. And that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. For since the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in them at large, it is unlawful for anyone, though an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures are sufficient to guide us in worship. Now, in the Old Testament, God gave very detailed instruction to Israel how they were to worship Him. and That detailed instruction is found in the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws were simply God's laws for worship. Think of the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is simply a handbook, a manual for Old Testament worship. Explaining God's regulations for the priesthood, for the tabernacle service, the various offerings and sacrifices... The festal days of Passover, the Feast of Booths, and the rest. Elaborate instructions for ceremonial cleanliness and the manner of divine worship. And all of these Old Testament laws were necessary for God's people at that time. Because remember, as the New Testament explains to us, for example in Galatians 3, the church in the Old Testament was yet spiritually immature. They were... Spiritually speaking, like young children. And just as young children need many very clear and specific rules to guide them and help shape their understanding, so too the church in the days of her spiritual immaturity needed this complicated and very specific system of rules to guide them. But now in the New Testament, the church, by the the Spirit of Christ, has come to spiritual maturity. The whole sacrificial system and its ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in Christ. And such detailed regulations for worship are no longer necessary. God gives much freedom to the New Testament church. In the area of worship but freedom doesn't mean no direction it doesn't mean worship is a free-for-all but God gives clear basic principles and directions in the scriptures and how do, how does the Bible then give us that direction we go through our Bible. We're not going to find an order of a prescribed order of worship. We're not going to find a, a Bible passage saying this is exactly how a church service can be done, because this is the New Testament. We don't need that. What we find instead, described on the pages of Scripture, are the main parts of worship. What we call the elements of worship, the the main spiritual activities that ought to make up the worship of God when his people gather together for that purpose. The exact arrangement of those elements, the exact manner in which those elements are carried out, there is freedom there. But there are main elements that God requires. The elements of worship. Think of a passage like Acts 2 verse 42 which gives us a picture of the apostolic church Worshiping, and we can find many of the elements of worship right there. Acts 2, verse 42 says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. There, you have the apostles' doctrine, the reading and the preaching of the scriptures, you have the breaking of bread. Which indicates a couple of things. The fellowship of the church that they often ate together. But implied there is also the celebration of the Lord's Supper. You have prayers which refer not only to coming together to pray to God. But the special form of prayer that is singing. Singing. The essence of worship is God meeting with his people to commune with them. And his people receiving his word and lifting up their praises to him. And these activities that compose worship, hearing God's word, singing, praying, giving offerings. These are part of fellowship with God. God meets with us and speaks to us and we respond with praise. And so the Bible gives us clear direction. Worship by hearing the word. Worship By celebrating the sacraments, worship by praying, worship by singing, worship by bringing your offerings, worship by confessing your faith, worship according to the word. And the attitude of the heart and the spiritual posture that should be reflected in all of those activities, the Bible gives us principles there as well. Come with reverence, come in humility, come with joyfulness. Let all of worship be from the heart, not just going through the motions. As you sing and as you pray, let it be with understanding. That's true worship according to the Word. And now what I want to focus on for a couple of minutes is the fact that worship according to the Word sets For us proper boundaries, but there is much freedom within those boundaries. The word forbids the use of images. The word forbids fashioning a system of worship after our own imagination. The word prescribes certain elements that make up worship, but within the boundaries of God's word there is much freedom Freedom in which we are called to use sanctified common sense. And as spiritually mature people of God, together apply the principles of God's word. So God commands the elements of worship. But there are many things related to worship. Things we call circumstantial elements. Things that are circumstantial connected to worship. Concerning which there is no command in which we are called to apply biblical principles to. And God's people have the freedom to arrange these circumstances according to what is most conducive to edification and the glory of God. That's a, that's a privilege of the spiritually mature New Testament Christian church. And so the second commandment, though it comes to us with a very forceful and important command, worship God only according to the word, that doesn't mean... That we must have an extremely complicated system of rules which we meticulously adhere to. Like in the Old Testament. God gives us principles by which we are called to abide. Now, to get at this more closely, it's helpful to have a few concrete examples. So a few examples. Consider how we do congregational prayer. Prayer is an element of worship. There must be prayer in the worship of the church. And that prayer must be done humbly and reverently and joyfully and from the heart. We would disobey God's will for worship if we did not have prayer in our corporate worship services. But now, how exactly do we carry out that calling to pray There are many circumstantial matters surrounding how we do congregational prayer. Do we have one lengthy prayer in which the needs of the congregation, praise to God and all of the rest, is brought before the throne of grace? That's our practice and our custom. And it's a good one. But it's not the only way to do it. There is liberty to have one or two or three congregational prayers. Perhaps prayers that focus on different subjects. Praise. Petition. Thanksgiving. There is liberty there in how that element of worship is carried out. Do we stand during congregational prayer like it seems many in the ancient church do? Or did? Or do we sit and bow our heads? Both are legitimate ways to pray to God. And there is liberty there. Now now the point I'm getting at here is in these areas of liberty, we conform to a certain practice not because that certain practice is God-ordained and therefore it would be wrong to do it in any other way, but we conform to that certain practice because it's God's will that we do all things decently and in good order and it would be disruptive if we all came together and prayed in different ways. We follow Ephesians 5.21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Another example would be musical accompaniment. Do we have musical accompaniment in the worship of God? Or do we sing just with the human voice? God's word gives freedom there. We use an organ and piano. That's a good choice. It's a beautiful instrument. It aids reverent worship. It aids singing. In a certain way, it avoids mimicking certain styles of worldly music. But that doesn't mean that there's something inherently holy about the sound waves emitted from an organ as opposed to the sound waves emitted from a violin or a guitar. It's not in the instrument itself. But that choice is based upon the application of a biblical principle in an area where there is freedom. And there are other legitimate choices that can be made as long as they accord with the Scripture. And so we're driving at a couple of important applications here. And the first application is concerning how we view good practices in the church or good traditions concerning the circumstantial aspects of worship. Not the elements, but the circumstantial aspects of worship. How do we view those things? And the principle is this, neither be dismissive of those good practices and traditions, nor lodge piety in them. To put it another way, value those good practices and traditions, but do not overvalue them. Organ and piano, using those instruments in worship is a good practice. It's not to be dismissed merely as being stuck in our ways behind the times or closed-minded. These practices are undergirded by good biblical principles and reasons. So let us not be dismissive. But let us also not lodge piety in these practices as if it is the only way and as if it would be sinful to do it any other way. That's not the case. Reverence in worship does not depend upon the instrument used. It depends upon the heart. The heart. It's a matter of the heart. Someone simply going through the motions, singing a psalm to organ accompaniment, might dishonor God because he's just going through the motions and his heart isn't in it. But someone who is singing from the heart a hymn... Accompanied by a guitar might glorify God because it is coming from true faith from the heart. The heart is the important thing. Form is just a shell without the heart. And so as we evaluate and think about in an intelligent way the good practices that we have in worship, our good traditions, let us not be dismissive of them, but let us also not lodge piety in them. Another example would be how people dress for worship. Our practice is to wear our Sunday best. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a good practice when we do it for the right reasons. If it comes from the heart, if it's just an outward thing, and our heart's not thinking about why we do that, that's another matter. But it's a good practice if it is done intentionally as an expression of reverence to God. I want to come before God and in this way show my respect for him. But it becomes a problem if we lodge piety in this practice and start thinking that there's something holier about wearing dress clothes than wearing casual clothes. Holiness does not consist in clothing, but holiness and reverence is an attitude of the heart. And reverence can be just as well expressed in formal attire as casual attire. And God can be dishonored just as much in formal attire as casual attire depending on the heart. We mustn't lodge piety in these practices. And if we lodge piety in these practices, it leads to making judgments about other people's hearts who don't follow the same practice. And if there's one thing that's true about our judgment of other people's hearts, it's that we're notoriously bad at it. God alone sees the heart. God alone sees the heart. So when a man comes wearing his Sunday best and it's from his heart, he comes that way to respect God. And that is good, a good practice. Another man somewhere else might not be sloppy, but wear casual attire to church because in his heart he wants to express a humble attitude of God. He doesn't want to come before God with any pretense, and that's the attitude of his heart. And that is reverent, and that is humble too. Reverence isn't in the external it's in the attitude of the heart and so the principle is as as we navigate these things these practices that we have in our tradition and in our worship let us not be dismissive but let us also not lodge piety in them The second commandment concerns the core elements of worship and gives much freedom in the area of circumstances. And it's the heart that counts. Well, Lastly this morning, worship that is according to the will of God is worship that will be centered on Christ and filled with Christ. And that's ultimately where the word points us. While man-made images are forbidden, we have one image given to us by God himself, an image not made with human hands, but the living image of God in the flesh, the image of the invisible God who is our Lord Jesus Christ, who came and dwelt among us, and in Christ, the invisible God is made visible. God's will for worship is that our worship Be centered on Christ. And a fascinating thing about the way the Bible reveals worship is that it's always centered on Christ. In the Old Testament as well as the New. In the Old Testament there were more visual elements to worship. God said no images. But God gave certain visual things to his people. Because as spiritual children they needed those things. Children learn from picture books before they can read. So too the saints in the Old Testament needed the picture book of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Which was a picture of Christ. Pointing to Christ. In the New Testament, that sacrificial system has been fulfilled. And now the central element, as the catechism points out, the central element in worship is the preaching of Jesus Christ. There is the centrality of Christ. The center of the church's worship and fellowship. Is the doctrine of the apostles. Which is the doctrine of Christ. And this is ultimately what brings glory to God. Because it is in Christ. The center of God's counsel. That God is supremely glorified. And this is what ultimately edifies us. Because Christ is the meat and drink. Unto life eternal that our souls need. And so the the second commandment. calls us to Christ-centered worship. That is worship according to the will of God. The ultimate reason that idolatry, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and image worship is so destructive, is that it leads away from Christ. It points away from Christ. When Israel worshipped Baal, they weren't looking at Christ. When they were offering sacrifices before their own images, they weren't looking to Christ. When We worship God according to our own will instead of God's will. We've turned our eyes away from Christ. Micah's homemade worship in Judges 17 was a worship that did not point to Christ. His mercenary Levite did not accurately represent Christ. When worship is rooted in and based upon God's word, the centrality of Christ will be maintained. And here's the importance of the last question and answer in our Lord's Day. Why preaching is prominent. Because through it Christ is pleased to speak. Let's not not try to be wiser than God. God will not have his people taught by speechless images. But by the lively preaching of the word. God is pleased to use the preaching to make the good shepherd's voice heard. And therefore, it's not just Rome's images that we don't want in our worship, but we don't want any distracting images or gimmicks that are going to take our eyes away from Christ, or displace the voice of Christ. Back long ago, they said, images are books to the illiterate laity. Today it is said that because attention spans are too short and people are so accustomed to images flickering across the screens that we have to change the way we do worship. No more preaching, but new kinds of images. But let's not waver from our commitment. To the centrality of gospel preaching. Because the word of God says. Faith doesn't come by looking at images. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing the word of God. It's not to preserve preaching for preaching's own sake. By itself preaching is foolishness. But in the hand of God is the means he's pleased to use. To feed and build up faith in Christ. And so that's why we maintain it. Not to be stuck in our ways traditionalists. But out of respect for God's chosen way of worshiping and his will for worship. And if preaching is according to scripture, it will help worship be centered on Christ. And God will be glorified. May God strengthen us to take his commandment into our hearts and worship him according to the word. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the instruction of the second commandment. And we pray that thy word may be pressed upon our hearts. And that we may take it for our guide, not only in other areas of life, but as our guide for worship too. Grant that we may worship thee, not after the devices of our hearts, but according to thy will, and may thy word ever be the center, that Christ may be the center. Amen.